Welcome to the All Souls Episcopal Parish in Berkeley's Sermon Podcast. Today is the 14th Sunday after Pentecost, and we hear from the Reverend Emily Boring as she preached from the lectionary, which this week was Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. As always, you can find more sermons or information about All Souls on our homepage, which is allsoulsparish.org. From Exodus, we find one of the first scientists in the Hebrew Bible. Moses, recently exiled to the wilderness, is tending sheep on Mount Horeb. Suddenly, a flame shoots out of a bush, and the bush blazes, but it's not consumed. We get a pause, a whole new sentence. Then Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why the bush is not burned up. (laughs) This line always makes me laugh. It makes me wonder if we're about to get a lesson in thermodynamics. And it reminds me of the first lesson I used to teach my Biology 101 classes. All great discovery begins with an act of wonder. We notice something that's interesting, unusual, unlike anything we've seen before. We take the time to look closer, dig deeper, seek the explanation behind what we've seen. From the noticing comes questions, from the questions hypotheses, and suddenly we see new layers and dimensions to our world. I thought I was going to preach a sermon about this wonder. I was going to tell you about all the times when turning aside to ask why about nature helped me sense the sacred in everyday life. As a geneticist, I watched chromosomes unfurl under microscopes, revealing invisible webs of ancestry and belonging. As a marine biologist, I pulled up great nets of pulsing, fluorescing, colorful creatures from the open ocean, residents of a depth that we'll never see. Over and over, asking questions about cells, genes, microbes, or sea stars, has helped me glimpse the intricacy, pattern, and mystery I call God. So I was going to give you a sermon that uses Moses' story as a call to action. Don't walk past the burning bushes, the sources of wonder in your life. Slow down, notice, let the ordinary become holy ground. But that sermon didn't sit right with me. It felt too easy and optimistic. It assumes that burning bushes are good things, that we want to look at them. It assumes that when we do, we'll feel curiosity and awe. More importantly, that sermon gives human beings a problematic amount of power. If I have the capacity to turn toward signs of God's presence, then I also have the capacity to turn away. My intimacy with God would depend on my openness or lack of openness. God's plans would depend on whether or not we choose to assent. I don't think that's the takeaway from this story. We're not meant to believe that the entire history of Israel 
Moses's capacity to receive God's instructions and lead his people out of Egypt, depends on this micro instant in which he notices the burning bush and decides whether or not to investigate. Why tell us about this moment, then? Why would the author of this passage take the trouble to distinguish between the moment that Moses looks at the bush and the moment he turns aside to see? Because it is a noticeable distinction. In English, look and see sound similar, but in the Hebrew text, they're very different words. Look here has a passive quality. It's an observation of something that's already happened, the same verb that's in the phrase, God saw that it was good. See, on the other hand, implies an act of investigation. It's not about physical eyesight, and it's important for us visually able folks to remember that. Seeing here is about perception. Moses turns back to the bush with the goal to understand. Our narrator seems to want us to lean into this moment, to inhabit the space between Moses' passive observation and his active response. For a moment, we feel suspense, hesitation, ambivalence, that pull between turning toward God's presence or continuing down our known path. Sound familiar? More often than not, my encounters with burning bushes haven't been particularly welcome. A burning bush is jarring. It disrupts our plans and expectations. It's a sign that the world has stopped working the way we thought it should. A burning bush might take the form of an illness, a terminal diagnosis. It might be an accident or a paralyzing loss. Maybe it's a bout of depression, anxiety, addiction, trauma, that leaves you unable to recognize your own true self. I don't know about you, but I don't usually want to look at those kinds of bushes. I'd rather keep walking, denying that anything requires my response. And I especially don't want to be told to listen for God in those moments, because I don't believe that God is possibly there. I find myself thinking, this, of all places, cannot possibly be holy ground. I think our story today is meant for exactly those kinds of moments. Moses' pause takes us back to those times in our own lives when we felt hesitant and uncertain, torn between curiosity and fear. There's every reason to imagine that Moses is having one of those moments. He's been forced to flee home, alienated from his people. He's gone from a prince of Egypt to a lowly shepherd. He's here in the wilderness because he committed a crime. He killed an Egyptian man. We can imagine his guilt and confusion. We can imagine that he barely recognizes himself. So it's not a stretch to assume that Moses was tempted to ignore the bush completely to turn away from this alarming, confusing display of fire and pretend that God never called. But of course, that doesn't happen. The encounter that follows has a remarkable pattern, a pattern that teaches us something about our own shortcomings and God's sufficiency 
our own hesitation, and God's care. Over and over, Moses holds back in doubt or confusion, and over and over, God steps in to meet him where he is. Moses doesn't have to start this divine conversation. God calls out to him, saying, Moses. All Moses has to do is say, here I am, which, as we know, is hard enough. God tells him, come no closer. The place where you're standing is already holy. You don't have to do anything more. Moses doesn't have to ask for anything. He doesn't petition on behalf of his people or come to God in desperate prayer. Instead, God launches into a speech, announcing that God has already heard the cry of the Israelites and knows the suffering of God's people and has come to deliver them. Moses, predictably, is full of self-doubt. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt, he asks. God says, I will be with you. You don't have to do it alone. Finally, and this is my favorite part, we come to the point in the story when Moses asks God's name. If I come to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask, what is your name? What shall I say to them? Moses gets more than he bargained for. I am who I am, God answers. An ontological riddle that's left us debating ever since. But God doesn't stop at that answer. God, or the author of this passage, anticipates that this I am stuff might be a little confusing for Moses, the Israelites, and generations of listeners to come. So God, we're told, provides alternative language. Moses should tell the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. In saying this, the name of God becomes situated in a human history, in a centuries-long tradition of kinship, family, and the founding of a nation. Our God is a God of power and mystery, Yes, but God also comes to us in terms we can understand. In sum, when I read the whole story of Moses on Mount Horeb, I find a reassuring pattern. This pattern helps me read the opening of our story differently. It helps me rethink what kinds of questions this passage raises and demands. The question isn't, how can I be more open and curious? How can I pay better attention to the burning bushes in my life? The question is, what happens when we're not open? What happens when a burning bush causes fear, not wonder? What happens when life makes us want to close down, steal ourselves, and tune out God's call? This passage helps me see that these moments, too, are invitations. They're opportunities for God to be with us, opportunities for God to show intimacy, care, and love. We don't notice, so God calls out to us. 
We don't understand, so God explains it in a different way. We feel powerless, so God says, I'll be with you. This intimacy is deeper than if we'd never hesitated. We start to trust that God will come to us. In closing, I'll tell you a short story. Earlier this week, I went on a walk with someone many of you know well, Reverend Liz Titchener, my predecessor in this role. I asked her lots of practical questions, like, where do you find clergy shirts that actually fit women? (laughs) But I also voiced a secret fear, a fear I hadn't shared with anyone else. When and how do you learn to carry this spiritual responsibility? How do you come to believe that you have the right, the authority, to be present to people's lives and souls? And Liz reminded me, well, it's not really you who does it. As priests, we're conduits and channels. We show up, but the Spirit speaks and works. Ah, yes. Hello to the ego. Hello again to that part of me that sometimes believes that God's work depends on whether or not I do my job. It's tempting to think that way. It feels safer, especially when the well-being of other people is at stake. If I'm responsible for noticing every burning bush, every spiritual opportunity, then I can make sure I don't miss any. If I pray hard enough, listen deep enough, be open enough, then I can make sure I don't fall short. Thankfully, God doesn't work like that. Sure, our God rejoices when we're open to God's presence. Our God celebrates when we do notice our callings, when we do align ourselves actively with missions of justice, liberation, and love. But God's work doesn't depend on our openness. God doesn't leave the outcome solely up to us. God answers the questions we haven't asked yet. God opens up paths we didn't know we sought. God is present not only in your willingness, but also in your hesitation. I am who I am, God says. You are who you are. The work is entrusting that that's enough.